Welcome to the Evolution of Capitalism podcast. My name is Mate Rigo of Yale and US College, and I have the pleasure to talk to an all-time friend and colleague today, Ferenc Lotso, Assistant Professor of History at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Um, Ferenc is a specialist on uh, modern East Central European history, uh, German history, and Jewish studies. Uh, his book, Hungarian Jews in the Age of Genocide, uh, discusses the intellectual history of Hungarian Jewry in the interwar period and during the Second World War and, and, and after. Uh, and as a historian, Ferenc really has done a lot connecting German history to East Central European history and vice versa. His, his various um, uh, publications, review essays, but also edited volumes speak to this commitment. So I'm here to talk about um, the anniversary of 1918, German history, the specificity of German history and new avenues in Jewish studies and new avenues in the in the history and research on World War II and the Holocaust. If you are up for it, Ferry, all this. Hi. Uh, hello, hello, Mati. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm very glad to uh, talk to you about all these issues. Great. So let's start with uh, 1918, because this year is 2018, the centenary of uh, the official end of the First World War. And let me just start by asking, what does 1918 mean in German history? Right. I would say that 1918 has traditionally been seen as a rupture, but it is a rupture among many, many ruptures, right? So if you look at 20th century German history, you may say that paradoxically, the continuity is in fact created by these multiple ruptures. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking for continuity, you have to look at these repeated experiences of ruptures and how people have dealt with it. And in fact, I think intellectually, the greater challenge is to really understand continuity, despite what seems to be a history full of ruptures. Right. I think that's where I, I guess we both mm -hmm. agree. And at the same time, you know, to talk more concretely, of course, 1918 is the year of Germany's defeat in the First World War. And it's the end of, of Imperial Germany, the end of Wilhelmine Germany, and it's the end of a much debated uh, period as well. Uh, I would say it's a period with many shortcomings, shortcomings that used to be highlighted a lot, but it's also a period with very clear achievements. So I think if you look at how the Wilhelmine period uh, is being assessed today, I think you see a certain trend towards its rehabilitation, you may say. Right after mm -hmm. the very many, very critical assessments after the Second World War. Nowadays, I think you also come to see it in a somewhat more positive light. You know what this uh, first modern German state was able mm -hmm. uh, to achieve. And there's really a very strong contest around that in historiography, right? Maybe much, much more so than about the Nazi period today. Uh, also, it's, I think, politically a very sensitive question to what extent you want to actually rehabilitate this not quite democratic structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, on another hand, and this, is, this should be obvious, 1918 is also the beginning of a democratic experiment in German history, which is a very audacious experiment. Mm -hmm. But it is an experiment that, of course, backfires in the most spectacular and most terrifying manner. So I think you have actually many questions uh, to ask here. Uh, you know, why does the first modern German state uh, engage in such a catastrophic war? Uh, why does it end up collapsing in the end? And why does the first democracy also fail to succeed in the end? Right. And some of these debates, as far as I know, right, have been addressed um, uh, in the Fisher controversy, right, in the 1960s and <laughs> onwards. So do you think it's possible to separate or hist historians now separate uh, the period before 1914 as sort of some sort of a usable past 
of Wilhelm in Germany and the period of the First World War, does it continue to be um, regarded as a problematic period? Is, is there a difference um, mm-hmm. in that regard? Yes, I think there is, of course, this very important disagreement, uh, I would say, about the origins uh, of Nazism in the end, right? Why does uh, Germany turn into such a terrifying dictatorship uh, by 1933 and right after? And why does it radicalize in such an unprecedented fashion uh, in the course of the next 12 years? So the question really is, what are the origins of this? Are they long term? Mm-hmm. Or are they rather short term? Mm-hmm. Is there something around, let's say, 1900 in Germany that in a way allows us to see the seeds of what would then follow? Or is it rather a short term cause? And I remember very vividly, I was uh, listening to a debate between Saul Friedlander and Hayden White uh, while I was in Vienna. Uh, and they were both at a conference organized by Norbert Frey, the, the historian of contemporary Germany, a uh, uh, professor at the University of Vienna. And, you know, they disagreed very fundamentally because uh, Friedlander was talking about the crisis of liberalism, right? That there was, uh, that liberalism didn't have strong enough bases uh, in modern Germany. And Hayden White, you know, coming more from the left, I should say, uh, he was talking about the crisis of capitalism. He said you cannot possibly understand uh, the rise of the Nazis without putting the primary emphasis on 1929 and what follows you know, the Great Depression also in Germany. So he was actually uh, pleading very much for a short-term, a short-term perspective. Uh, and I think that's, of course, very interesting to, to, to go back to this, this debate also, also now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And there is also Gold Hagen's book that traces it back to the early modern period and the origins of anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. which is probably less popular um, these days, right? Um, so do you think that there is any... Um, specificity to German history, what's the status of the Sonderweg debate, if, if I may ask, if it's not sort of too much to ask in this, um, yes, um, in this right, interview? Right. Well, I, I would say that what's interesting, of course, about the Sonderweg discussion is that it was uh, first a very positive thing, right? I mean, German historians, nationalist ones, uh, before, you know, the catastrophe, before the collapse, thought of the unique path of Germany in very positive ways, right? Germany was exceptional, and this was a good thing. Uh, and of course, this was, uh, so to say, recoded uh, after the Second World War with this critical turn in a very negative way. But I think now that we're much more likely to think in comparative and in transnational terms, I think we're not so likely to fall for a kind of simplistic Zonderweg argument, right? I don't think we want to just highlight what's unique about Germany, neither in a positive nor in a negative way. And I think that you know, German, German history, after all, is, so to say, European history, uh, or at least a microcosm of European history. I think it's very, very difficult uh, to understand European politics without thinking about what, again, Brendan Sims has recently called the German question. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's quite striking how, and I think, again, your your advisor, Holly Case, has just written a brilliant new book on the age of questions, right, where she's talking mostly about the 19th century. And one thing that's really striking there is that the German question is one of the few questions that survives in that form, right? It's still often, you know, used even even in a, in the mainstream media today as a question, right? Mm-hmm. It sounds very anachronistic uh, in many ways, but it, but it still it still lingers on uh, because you know the rise of this modern powerful country in the middle of the continent mm-hmm. really changes so much about European politics. Mm-hmm. And what I think seems uh, argues, by the way, and this is also I think really really uh, fascinating is that Germany is in the center of modern European politics, whether it's weak 
or strong. It doesn't really mm -hmm. matter, you know, whether we have a strong unified Germany or a divided, mm -hmm. defeated one. Uh, European politics uh, in the 19th, 20th century is very much around how to resolve uh, the problem of the center. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that really ties into my second question or se second group of questions I wanted to ask you is that we are living in the debates around area studies, right? To what extent <laughs> is there such a thing as East Central Europe? Should we have a center for East Central European studies? Uh, should we organize our research around specific areas inherited, in this case, in the case of East Central and Eastern Europe, from the Cold War? Now, in terms of German history, do you think it makes sense for professional research to continue to study uh, and research German history as the history of the German nation state, at least for the 19th and 20th centuries? And sort of the second question is, is about teaching. Do we teach German history as um, as the history of the German nation state, and is there a divergence between how we study German history and how we teach it? Right. These are these are fascinating questions. I, I hope I'll be able to address at least at least uh, some some of their main uh, features. I think again they're very complex and, and very challenging uh, questions. Uh, and, and thank you so much for raising raising these issues. I mean, I would say my my first instinct would be to say that. You know, when you think of German history, you have to think of it in connection with both Western and Eastern Europe. It doesn't really make sense uh, to think about Germany without thinking also about France and Britain, but nor does it really make sense to do that without thinking about Poland or Russia. Uh, and that's, of course, what makes, I think, the writing of modern German history is so exceptionally, uh, uh, so exceptionally difficult in a way, and also uh, so important for European history writing as a whole, that this is a country which has very strong connections in, in, in basically all major directions uh, in Europe. And if you want to really understand you know, what happens in Germany in 1900 or right after 1945, you pretty much have to go into all possible corners of the continent to put that story together. Uh, and of course, that also goes if you look at the history of migration, right? Uh, Germans have migrated in huge numbers to Russia and have played a very big role in, in the rise of the modern Russian state. But so they have they migrated across the Atlantic, also to, to the territory of the U.S., famously. And of course, nowadays, when you look at um, uh, in-migration, right, which is the major trend of recent uh, generations, people coming to Europe, Germany, of course, takes up a disproportionate uh, uh, percent of, of that. And people have really come from all possible areas of the world and have become Germans uh, in, recent, in more recent years. So, of course, that's, that's really something which, I, which makes me think that you really have to take into account both the European and, in the end, uh, the global uh, dimensions uh, of European history. But having said that, I think what's really also interesting about Germany uh, is that it's, in many ways, it's seen as an Eastern European country, mm -hmm. uh, which then which then westernizes. Uh, and it westernizes after 45, and this is only three quarters of the remaining uh, two you know, German entities, right? I mean, it's basically talking about Western Germany when, when we say this. Mm -hmm. So it moves to the West, and nowadays we have this idea ever since you know Brexit and the election of Trump that Germany is the model state of the West, right? Winkler has this famous book about modern Germany called The Long Road to the West, mm -hmm. and now you, you may say that Germany has arrived <laughs> in a position where maybe it's not alone as a representative of those Western values and those Western norms, but it's certainly seen as a leading nation trying to hold on to the liberal democratic consensus, right? And that is, that is I think, a fascinating story to, 
to look at how, how Germany, it's a symbolic change, but it's also a geographical and material change, right? Germany losing uh, large parts of its Eastern European territories, also German people being expelled from Eastern Europe. So that divide between Germany and Eastern Europe, as we know today, is really a product of the 1940s. So it's only, let's say, 70 years old, but it has really become something really strongly established. Mm -hmm. Now, coming to your second question, if I may, about teaching, I think that's, again, a very, very complicated question, but I, I would like to say that I think we do need to look at uh, the rise of modern states and modern nation states as well, but always with an eye to the rise of the international system. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, when we look at the rise of modern notions of sovereignty, I think we need to also explain that this only ever makes sense in an international system. You know, the claim to sovereignty is a claim that has to be recognized by somebody else. Otherwise, it, does, it isn't worth anything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, in that sense, I'm, 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 I must admit to you, I'm a bit like a German scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that we need to look at the making of nation states because the making of nation states is a, is a tremendously successful process in modern Europe. And it also led to a lot of ethnic homogenization, which was a very brutal and very violent process. And I think it's very important for us to know the consequences. Mm -hmm. I think in this sense, I'm very much thinking along, let's say, mainstream German lines, right? That the idea that political and cultural notions of belonging are merged in modern Europe and that this idea of homogeneity uh, really becomes dominant at a certain point is something we need to remember in order to make sure it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. And I think nowadays uh, there are strong signs that it might be happening again. And that's, I think, really, really frightening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's 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 really that's really interesting. And on your closing point about you know frightening processes, you know I want to turn back to the beginning of our conversation on turning points and ruptures in German history to talk about the Holocaust, right? Uh, which is mm -hmm. one of your specialties in Jewish history. I mean, it has mm -hmm. been one of the research areas in our field that really have taken up since the 1990s, probably even earlier. Yes. Where do you think the frontiers and new avenues of research lie in this direction? That is the history of the Second World War and the history of the Holocaust. Right. Well, recently I've been trying to think quite a lot about the Europeanization, also Holocaust remembrance, how it works and what are the, the limitations to that process today. And one thing which I found really striking when I was looking at it from that, uh, let's say, that point of view of you know, Europeanization uh, is how 90% of the victims of the Holocaust were from Eastern Europe, were from territories that fell behind the Iron Curtain, right, from a, mm -hmm. from a Western uh, point of view, and that also the Holocaust itself was, was executed, was, was implemented in uh, Eastern Europe, right? Uh, the major sites of Holocaust perpetration were also, practically all of them were behind uh, the Iron Curtain. So it was very much an Eastern European event, but its remembrance and its research is in many ways a Western one, right? It's an mm -hmm. overwhelming amount of Western scholarship and local or regional scholarship compared to that, I think, has really, has really lagged uh, behind. So I think what is really missing today in the end is, is, is extension of the field more towards, let's say, the southeastern uh, European area. And by that, I also mean Hungary, but also Slovakia, maybe Romania, Croatia, you know, countries that had very significant Jewish communities. You may know that um, the four largest Jewish communities west of the Soviet Union on the eve of the Second World War were the Polish one, which is, of course, something that everybody knows. And then came the Czechoslovak, the Hungarian and the Romanian Jewish mm -hmm. communities. So they were very, very large, 
hundreds of thousands of people in each of these cases, and they also fell victims in a disproportionate uh, way, in, a, in the disproportionate numbers. Uh, so, so what you have here is really a story uh, of countries also being allied uh, to Nazi Germany, just like, of course, in the case of Hungary, is a clear, it's, I think, is a clear example, of course. Uh, and and this this is a, a story which I think hasn't really been uh, put uh, uh, to, to a central stage yet. So for I'll give you one example. Mm -hmm. uh, Saul Friedlander uh, published uh, two volumes on Nazi Germany and the Jews, uh, and I think it's 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 a fascinating uh, piece of work, really. Uh, and then he's one of the finest historians we have. Uh, but having said that, his first volume covers the territory of Germany uh, practically exclusively. Now, 98% of the victims of the Holocaust, who eventually, you know, fell, fell victim in between 1941 and 45, were from outside Germany, right? So I think the big question there is, how did these people, how did these Jewish people in Europe experience the rise of Nazi Germany and also the increasingly uh, anti-Semitic turn of their own countries? And how do they relate uh, to, these, to these processes from outside Germany, right? This is really the transnational question. Uh, and in fact, I have just published a short review essay uh, in the journal Contemporary uh, European History, where I, where I try to, to sketch out how this might revise our inherited image uh, of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So now you're, if I understand it correctly, um, when you said that, uh, that Holocaust remembrance um, is not at the center of southeastern and east central european states versus it's very much at the center of western european uh, mm -hmm. remembrance of the holocaust you were talking about remembrance and not primarily research right to what extent can mm -hmm. we say that historians of germany and the united states have covered the history of the holocaust in polish territories czechoslovakia hungary romania where do you see sort of new research coming in? Or can you give an example of where this might, um, you know, where this might sort of fill a gap or just give a new understanding? Or is sort of, you know, is the, is, is the role of this new history of filling a gap or just, you know, providing a new interpretation based on historical theory, intellectual history and other sources of inspiration such as literature? Right. I would say there are two uh, major issues there. I think the history of the Second World War uh, the, has, has really, the way it has been written has focused a lot on Germany, Poland, and the Soviet Union. Now, it has focused much less on states that were allied uh, to the Nazis. So the Axis powers were not just Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, uh, which is again something very, very well known, but the countries that were also members of these Axis uh, forces and that also participated uh, mm -hmm. in the war on the Eastern Front have actually been under-thematized, right? They have been underrepresented in the in the literature, and I think there's a lot that can still be done uh, to understand better how they related uh, to the to their major allies, whether Germany uh, or Italy. Uh, and again, Hungary and Romania, I think, are the most interesting cases here. Now, but the other side of it is, uh, and this is of course where Timothy Snyder and others have done, I think, an invaluable uh, job is to look at uh, the, the beginnings of the Holocaust in 1941 and to bring that in relation to what happens in those territories just beforehand, mm -hmm. right? We have we used to write the history of the Holocaust as the history of Nazi Germany and Nazi expansion. And I think, again, this is partly what you see in Friedlander's work that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. But of course, when, when the Holocaust is launched uh, in, in territories uh, of, of Eastern Poland, which then become parts of 
part of Ukraine or in the Baltics. And these are areas that, that were just being, in a way, quote, quote unquote, liberated by the Nazis from, from Soviet occupation, right? So you have this whole story of the entanglement of mm -hmm. Stalinism and Nazi Germany. And I think that's an area which is extremely sensitive for a great number of reasons. But I think there's a lot that remains to be done there. Also, if you want to to really tell the whole history of Central and Eastern Europe. Again, thinking about Hungary more specifically, you know, where, where are the country we both happen to come from? We have arrived at a, at a point there where there's a simple equation between these two great mm -hmm. dictatorships. Right? The idea is that Stalinism and Nazism were somewhere very similar. Now, this, I think, is not terribly helpful. Mm -hmm. They were similar in some respects and very different in others. They have both committed major crimes, but in different ways at different times. Their whole story, their process of radicalization worked in very different ways. So I think we need to start to compare more earnestly and also look at these entanglements. I think there's a lot that remains to be mm -hmm. to be done there. No, that's uh, that's definitely um, sounds convincing. And, you know, just also to, to close, but also probably to close on a, on a happier note, do you have a, a recent historical monograph or a book on either Jewish studies, the history of World War II, or German history that you really liked or that you find exemplary um, off the top of your head. Right, right. Well, I could mention several books, really, which I've been reading recently and I was really fascinated by. Uh, Omer Bartov has published a book on Buchach, a small town in what is nowadays Ukraine, which is, again, trying to embed uh, the history of anti-Jewish genocide in the context of local history, which I think is a very, very interesting and fruitful attempt. And it's really a, it's a terrifying book looking at uh, the, the genocide uh, in local communities. I could mention maybe Mark Mazaur, who I think is one of the most interesting and really one of the most uh, erudite uh, historians of, of modern Europe, including Germany and the European dimensions of German history. Uh, Hitler's Empire is his big book on the Second World War which looks at Nazi empire building in Europe. And I think that's really, again, an, an, another approach uh, which, which yields a lot and, and still has a lot, a lot of further promise. But having said that, I think if I had to highlight just one book, I would maybe still go for uh, uh, Probing the Limits of, of Holocaust Culture, which is an edited volume published, I think, a year or two ago now by Fogu, Kahnsteiner and Pressner, uh, the three of them, because I think this is really a book uh, which is asking one of the most central questions, the way I see it, which is what is the ethics of Holocaust culture uh, in the contemporary world, right? We mm -hmm. have arrived at, a, at, at, at an age where Holocaust memory has been uh, institutionalized in many, many ways, uh, and many of the survivors are no longer with us. Uh, so what we need is a dialogue between older and younger generations of, of what this Holocaust culture that we have established means today, uh, and, you know, what it should mean in the future. And I think this is really the book that asks these very timely uh, and very critical questions. And I think it provides really thought-provoking answers. So if I had to highlight just one book, I would say Probing the Limits of Holocaust Culture uh, is the one uh, you should all read. <laughs> Great. And uh, you were modest enough not to mention your own book. So, <laughs> so thanks for that. Ferenc Lasso, thank well, you very much for the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you for the conversation, Ferenc Lasso. Thank you so much, Mate. It was a great pleasure.